0: then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts.
1: With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Welcome to Human Monsters. As a human race, we have succeeded in mapping the universe and effortlessly sending objects, animals, and people into space. But in ways of the heart, I doubt we are any wiser than we were a thousand years ago. Still, to love and to be loved is such a natural instinct that even psychopaths, serial killers, and mass murderers like Dennis Nilsen and Jeffrey Dahmer found themselves confessing that part of the motive for their murderous and cannibalistic acts were because they were lonely. Personally, I prefer the bodies in bed next to me a little warmer and a little more talkative, but it just proves that we all, in our own way, want to belong in an intimate relationship. Even those of us who are inherently antisocial and self-professed hermits need and want at one point or another in our lives, the closeness and comfort of a companion we can share our deepest thoughts and desires with, no matter how distorted they may be. The amount of apps available online to match you with a perfect partner is already so staggering that by the time you find a photo of the face you consider to be attractive enough, the mere thought of the actual meeting can cause anxiety and panic attacks. Face it, modern dating is not for sissies, and the rules of engagement in courting a lover has changed incredibly during the last couple of decades. For one thing, the game is now much faster, And relationships that go from zero to 100 within a couple of weeks, just to crash and burn within months, seem to be an everyday occurrence. But honestly, how well could you know a possible life partner after a handful of dates? One of the best pieces of advice out there about dating is to never bring all your baggage to the first couple of dates. Instead of arriving at the restaurant or bar with all your spiritual, emotional, and other luggage ready to unpack and overshare, take a small suitcase or duffel bag and make a point of unpacking the secrets of your soul slowly. In today's cases, relationships might not have started with big suitcases, but it sure ended with our victims finding themselves trapped and suffocating in a coffin made of canvas. Just the thought of being stuck in an elevator for five minutes pushes my blood pressure into overdrive. So the mere thought of slowly suffocating to death in a confined space and dying of homicidal asphyxiation terrifies me beyond my worst nightmares. As I read through these cases, I found myself trying to imagine what it would feel like to be constricted in such a small space and, as the air in your lungs gradually becomes less, the panic and urgency for oxygen increase. Now, try to imagine dying in this manner, while the person who told you that they loved you, the person who put you in this unimaginable predicament, is but a step or a moment away and he or she intends to do nothing about your impending death. None of the victims in our show today thought that the butterflies they first felt in their stomachs would carry with it a poison so toxic and lethal that what began as a fairy tale would soon turn into the true crime story covered on our show. Valerie Ray's Valerie Rays was a Latina rose in full bloom when her life was so stupidly and callously cut short. Her dark eyes spoke of an old soul, and her raven hair framed a beautiful face. She was a natural beauty, but what infused her attractiveness was the fact that she was completely unaware of how gorgeous she really was. Those who met her would testify to a shy, artistic, and friendly young woman from a close-knit family. She grew up in a middle-class suburb in the town of New Rochelle, situated in the southern part of the state of New York. Her parents, Norma and Sal Reyes, raised her and her three brothers with good family values. The clan would gather on Sundays and either go to the park to relax or or stay at home and play board games. Valerie seemed to have the closest relationship with her oldest brother, and she had aspirations of one day becoming a tattoo artist like him. As the sleeve tattoo on her arm would show, she was a huge fan of this art form and would often let him practice on her. She loved to draw, sing, read, and enjoyed long nature walks. As is often the case with a sensitive soul, she started to suffer from anxiety and depression since her teenage years. But with her close network of family and friends, her mental illness seemed to be well under control. By the time she was 24 years old, she had her own apartment about 15 miles away from her parents' home, and she was working full-time at the Barnes & Noble bookstore in her community as a clerk. She enjoyed her work, but her creative nature yearned for an occupation which would give her more creative freedom. Sadly, the young woman who had so many dreams and aspirations and a life filled with endless wonderful opportunities would never be able to fulfill any of her dreams. It's unfortunate that Valerie decided not to share with her confidants why she felt this way, but from what we can gather, Valerie had been feeling unsettled since 2018 and mentioned to her mother and her best friend of 10 years, Jeffrey Anderson, that she thinks she might be stalked. When they pushed her for more information, she would shut down and try to change the subject. But on the 28th of January, 2019, Valerie and her mother had a conversation during which a frantic Valerie told her mother she feels like someone is watching her. She told her mother that she was really, really scared, and that she was afraid she was going to be murdered. Her mother tried to calm her down, but also pressed her for more information. On the 24th of January 2019, Valerie and her most recent boyfriend had broken up, which meant she would be alone in the apartment. Her mother asked her if it's her boyfriend that was either threatening to harm her or making her fear for her life but Valerie said he had nothing to do with the feeling of impending doom that had wrapped its dark cloak around her spirit. True to her nature, Valerie shut the conversation down, and the two said their goodbyes. This prediction of her own impending death would haunt Norma for the rest of her life. Her last contact with anyone from this point on was at 10.45 p.m. when she texted a friend that she was wiped out and wanted to go to bed. When Valerie did not arrive for work on the 29th of January, 2019, staff knew something was wrong. Her parents were notified and immediately went to the New Rochelle Police Station to file missing persons report. Valerie had made arrangements to meet her mother at a Home Depot that morning, but when she did not arrive, her mother was not too concerned and presumed something else must have been more urgent to attend to. When Valerie did not answer her calls, Norma became a little more concerned. Valerie was a homebody and never went to pubs or clubs. Police officers realized that this young woman's disappearance was not of her own choosing, and an investigation began in full force. Norma relayed the intense conversation she had with her young daughter the previous evening, explaining that her Valerie felt unsafe and that she was terrified the evening of their last conversation. The stars were aligned, and all agencies involved believed that in her case, her disappearance was not out of her own free will. On the surface, nothing in her apartment seemed out of order, apart from her iPad, her iPhone, all her bedding, some clothes, and her wallet being missing. In the bathroom, there were two drops of blood on the tiles and one on the toilet bowl. But this could have come from her cutting herself or menstruating. Her ex-boyfriend was quickly ruled out and for days an intensive search was conducted to find the missing young woman. The community of New Rochelle was not very big and her smiling face on flyers and posters were everywhere to be seen. She was last observed wearing black jeans, a black shirt, and a green jacket. On the 5th of February in 2019, highway workers were doing repairs on structures after a storm when they came upon a red suitcase on the side of the road just past the border of Connecticut. Curiosity overtook the men, but the moment they unzipped the suitcase, the stench of human decomposition hit them so hard they had to vomit. They called the police to report the gruesome find, but not before one of them took a photo and shared it online. Thankfully, this total disregard for decent humanity was not overlooked by his employer, and his service was immediately terminated. As you might have guessed by now, the body that emitted the putrid smell belonged to Valerie Ray's. She wore black jeans, an unbuttoned black shirt, and no shoes. Her hands, knees, and ankles were bound with white twine. Her mouth was repeatedly wrapped with packing tape, and it was clear by her injuries that she had been beaten severely. Her autopsy would reveal that she had a cracked skull, a broken nose, a fractured cheekbone, and a hematoma. She did not die of her injuries, however, and her cause of death was determined to be homicidal asphyxiation. She had been alive when she was placed in the suitcase, and all the injuries she suffered were caused by punches and all signs indicated to a crime of passion. If a murderer dumped a body a couple of decades ago, they would have increased their chances of getting away with the crime if they crossed borders. But these days, if a criminal decides to dump a body in another state as which the crime was committed in, The case automatically becomes a federal case where the big guns like the FBI are called in to solve the case. DNA was taken from the evidence and her digital footprint was closely examined. Police quickly noticed that on the morning of the 29th of February 2019, $1,000 was withdrawn from her account. According to camera footage from the ATM, a man wearing black from head to toe with a hoodie hiding his face was the person making the transaction. The man had clearly exited from a black Honda, but the license plate was obscured. Thankfully, we live in a time when almost every corner of the world is watched by a camera, and on different surveillance footage, police caught a break, and the license plate number was clearly visible. The vehicle seemed the best lead to follow when it was traced to a rental car in Flushing, Queens, in the state of New York. The car had only been rented for the 28th and 29th, and payment details quickly revealed that an ex-boyfriend of Valerie's, Javier da Silva, had been listed as an authorized driver of the vehicle. Life in a third-world country, even when there is no unrest, which is seldom, is difficult, but despite the challenges that face people every day, Many a refugee had been able to make a life for themselves, despite their circumstances. This was not the case with Javier. The 24 year old man might have come from a third world country, but he apparently lived a comfortable life in his native Venezuela. He had dual citizenship, both in Venezuela and in Portugal, and had studied journalism in 2017. He had a moderate Instagram following loved to travel, and would eventually visit several states in America. He liked photography and walks in nature, but despite the fact that we can tell why Valerie fell for this villain who had an artistic side and a mutual love for the outdoors, who cares? Like so many others, he wanted to escape the violence and unrest that surrounded him, and he grabbed the opportunity to make use of the same kind of three-month visa that has been the ticket of many a drama-filled moment in the reality show 90 Day Fiancé. After the 90 days expired, he just decided to never leave. Javier and Valerie met online and the two dated in early 2018. The relationship lasted about three months. Most of the people who knew him spoke of a kind young man, but Valerie's mother saw right through his ruse. Norma, Valerie's mother, did not like the sullen young man with his long curly hair and pencil-thin mustache. She found that Javier was controlling and jealous and not a good match for her daughter. He would always appear in a bad mood and insisted that everything they did suit him. He did not take no for an answer, and Norma could tell that Valerie was far less enamored with him than he was with her. He told the family that his mother was dying of cancer, but Valerie's mother thought this was just a ploy for more attention and sympathy. Norma knew she had raised her daughter well, and all she could do was hope Valerie would quickly see the manipulative man who tried to get his fangs deeper into her life sooner than later. The moment came when, after three months, Javier started to pressure Valerie to move in together. This, and the fact that he was too intense was the last straw for her. As expected, he did not take the breakup well. He became combative and would bombard her with calls and texts to the point where Valerie felt she had to ghost him. Despite her blocking him, he would continue to find excuses to talk to her. When his constant craving for her attention stopped, she thought he had gone away. But he had undoubtedly started to stalk her by now. As investigators dug deeper into the case, they discovered more evidence that linked the two together. A picture Valerie had drawn that was found in her apartment matched the profile picture of the social media website Javier had been using. Although it affirmed their connection to each other, it would be Javier himself that provided more circumstantial evidence against himself. In August 2018, Javier had contacted Valerie claiming that he had accidentally used her debit card information to make a transaction. It's unclear how Valerie dealt with this new information, but it does appear that she did want to open a case of fraud against him. Javier was a short-order cook and cashier for a restaurant in Flushing, Queens, where he also lived in a condo. Surveillance footage would show him leaving his condo on the 28th wearing dark clothing at 10.50 p.m., and returning the following day wearing a tan coat and carrying a duffel bag at 9.45 a.m. He stayed in his apartment for a short period of time, then left again. Records of the car rental agency from where the Honda was hired show that Javier returned, rented out the exact same vehicle, cleaned it thoroughly, and then returned it again. His cell phone's digital records would show that he was at both New Rochelle and the place where Valerie's body was found on the day of her murder, and also where her body had presumably been left on the side of the road in a suitcase. By the 11th of February, police felt that they had enough evidence to arrest the young man for fraud, and he was taken into custody. A strong case was forming, and after interrogating Javier, a search warrant was issued for his apartment. The DNA evidence was still being processed, but police were certain it would just be the cherry on the criminal case's cake. The condo revealed a treasure trove of further evidence. Apart from Valerie's pillow, her wallet with her driver's license and her bank card was found among his belongings. During the interrogation, Javier lied and lied, despite the mounting evidence. He claimed to have had no contact with Valerie, and that he just happened to find Valerie's wallet in the street while bar hopping one evening in Manhattan, and that he found the piece of paper in the wallet with her PIN code already in her wallet. Then he claimed he was too drunk to remember, but once all the evidence was put in front of him, he changed his story once again. He claimed that late on the evening of the 28th of January, he had visited Valerie, and the two had consensual sex. While in the throes of passion, he claimed that Valerie had fallen on her head, and he thought that she would scream and that she would get him into trouble. He claims that when she had the accident, he panicked. He wrapped the layers of tape around her head so that she would not scream, and professed that the reason he tied her up was so that she could fit into the suitcase. The red suitcase he used happened to be the very same one the two had used during a trip together. His claim that he was not stalking her was brought to question when he sent a text to a woman he was chatting to saying, I just caught my girlfriend fucking another guy in my bed in New Rochelle, a mere two days before her murder. It would also reveal that he was about 200 meters away from her apartment at the time. It's unclear if he was invited in or if he forced his way in, but here is what we do know. His DNA was not only all over the suitcase, but also on her breasts and genitals and under her fingernails. An argument, regardless of how he entered, must have broken out, and Valerie would be no match for him with her small frame. After he had beaten her, tied her up, and placed her in the suitcase, He placed the luggage with its grim contents in the Honda. He then sat for an hour in his car, going through her phone, looking at photos and texts she had been writing and receiving, and, of course, her bank details. He had not only opened the suitcase to use her thumbprint to open her iPhone, but also went back to his victim, who at this stage was still alive and absolutely terrified To use her thumbprint again to gain access to her bank account. In total, he would drain Valerie's savings of an estimated $5,300 in total. At 6.30 a.m., he switched on his own phone. He claims he threw her phone off a bridge. He kept her pillow and then placed an ad on an online marketplace for her iPad and would end up trading it for an Apple laptop and a monitor. Showing no remorse, he would post photos online of himself, smiling as he showed off his bounty. During his trial, he constantly cried and tried to apologize, saying, I'm a bad person, I don't know what to do. He claimed that he tried to get caught, and that is why the evidence is so overwhelming. The judge had no sympathy, agreeing that he is an evil person, and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison for the charge of kidnapping resulting in death, after which he will be deported. Jorge Torres When the video that went viral and made this case notorious first dropped into my newsfeed, I just knew this This is a story the TCHS fans would be able to appreciate. It's a little over two minutes, and it basically shows someone point an iPhone at a suitcase. Then the suitcase begins to talk, although the sounds and words are more begging and pleading. From the zipped-up navy blue luggage, a man's voice starts to beg his girlfriend, Sarah, to please let him out. He's clearly in distress and repeats to his lover that he cannot breathe. The woman filming his torture, Sarah Boone, can be heard chuckling and shouting in a clearly drunken state phrases like, fuck you, and that's how it feels when you choke me, and shut the fuck up. This video, which Sarah claims she doesn't remember making, along with the autopsy report, will turn what originally seemed as if it could have been an accident into a homicide investigation. Jorge Torres Jr. And Sarah Boone met and fell in love in 2017 and from the beginning there were signs that the couple were not a good match. Sarah seemed to be the sole breadwinner and the pair shared a condo in Winter Park, Florida. Within a year we find the first police report indicating that the couple were involved in a poisonous relationship when Jorge, aged 42 when he passed away, got into an altercation with Sarah at a bar. According to the police reports, Jorge flew into a jealous rage after Sarah asked a patron of the bar for a cigarette. Jorge left the bar and went home, but the altercation escalated inside the condo, with Jorge dragging Sarah up the stairs, and according to her, kicked her repeatedly, bruising her eye. As is often the case, police were confronted with two sides of a story because Jorge claims the injuries were accidental. Police could not determine who the main aggressor was, and both were arrested and held overnight. The next documented altercation happened on the 15th of June, 2019, when Jorge once again lost his temper during an argument and threw Sarah off the bed and started to beat her across the chest, arms, and face. The report also shows a charge of battery and strangulation, and according to Sarah's statement, Torres told her, You are going to die. Jorge was arrested, and as part of his release, he was ordered to attend substance abuse classes, as well as battery intervention classes. A no-contact order was also put into place, but the volatile couple once again rekindled their relationship within a couple of days. Jorge effectively had nowhere else to go, and his status as an unemployed, paroled individual meant that his options for shelter were minimal. On the 19th of June, 2019, while Sarah was upstairs in their apartment, Jorge decided to take her credit card and leave. She called the police and once again a report featuring the battling lovebirds was taken. Sarah opted not to lay charges and have him arrested, but the repercussions were already in motion. This would result in his arrest in September 2019, since his bond terms had been broken. During her interrogation, Sarah complained that the couple, who lived with her son, Lucas, from a previous marriage, saw too much of each other. Considering the crime she will be charged with happened but a month before lockdown and COVID forced us all to spend more time than usual with our loved ones, I shuddered to think what this domestic situation would have been like during the pandemic. Jorge wasn't working, and apparently was suffering from depression as a result of a job he had lost recently. It seemed that Sierra started to feel that they just spent more time together than was healthy for her. The fact that he had chronic violent outbursts, and also cheated on her, made their living arrangement even more stressful. Sarah also claimed that Jorge's ex-wife would also call constantly for child support, and since he was unemployed, he felt inadequate. According to Sarah, part of the problem between the couple was the fact that Jorge liked to drink. She claims to have tried to avoid joining him, but she clearly failed on the evening on the 23rd of February 2020. During the police interrogation, Sarah states that Jorge came home with two bottles of wine. She told police that they were actually having a good day and were painting and building puzzles while watching movie trailers on her laptop, since Jorge had smashed the television during a previous argument. Both empty bottles were retrieved from the dustbin, which indicated the couple were not sober when the incident Sarah refers to as an accident happened. We unfortunately only have Sarah's side of events to go by, but according to her, the couple decided to play a game of hide and seek, which quickly thistled out since Jorge never came to find her in her hiding place in the bathroom. Somehow, Sarah convinced Jorge to get into a travel suitcase, which they were using to store items meant for donation. Originally, she claimed that she was only going to leave him for five minutes in the suitcase, and at one point, She went upstairs and fell asleep on her bed. She woke up the following morning at 11 a.m. when her phone rang, and she says that she was under the impression Jorge was downstairs working on the laptop. It was then she discovered Jorge's body still in the suitcase and clearly dead. Instead of calling the emergency services, she called her ex-husband Ryan, who told her to call 911 immediately. The call is also telling, since she showed hardly any emotion, and it sounds more as if she is making an appointment to have something unwanted in her apartment removed. When EMTs arrived on the scene, they noted a couple of strange injuries, which were also reported in George's autopsy. He had long scratches on his back, as well as abrasions on his face, head, hands, and arms. The injuries around his head showed impact made by blunt object. He also had a black eye, and a neighbor would later testify that at one point on the evening of the 23rd of February 2020, he heard something like an object falling down a flight of stairs. This testimony will be introduced into the trial, but it's by far not the most damning evidence against Sarah. Jorge had spent an estimated 12 hours trapped in the suitcase and his cause of death would be revealed as positional asphyxia. Ironically, this would not be the first time authorities would be contacted with regard to Sarah and a suitcase. Four years before the incident, Sarah was reported to CPS after a photo of a little girl being placed into a suitcase came to light. The child admitted that it was her idea to climb into the suitcase, and since no crime was committed and the action seemed voluntary, The case was dropped. Police obtained a warrant for her phones and laptop, and found not one, but two videos Sarah had taken of Jorge while trapped in the suitcase. The reels show Jorge trapped in his coffin, begging for his life, while Sarah laughs and throws insults at her trapped lover. In another video, she is seen flipping over the suitcase, making it impossible to get out of the restraint even if he could undo the zip that had been fastened by a paperclip. Sarah claims she was sober, but that statement was rubbish, and the fact that the couple were both intoxicated was finally brought into evidence a couple of weeks ago. In the interrogation, she repeatedly says that she did not kill him intentionally, but her demeanor is devoid of remorse or emotion, only showing concern once she realizes she might not leave the room a free woman, and asks police how she can make arrangements to have her son taken care of. Whether she killed him intentionally or not, the prosecution charged her with second-degree murder, and this Orlando native is currently held in the Orange County Jail awaiting her trial, which has been postponed until the 7th of November, 2022. Most of us will not have to suffer the after effects of a toxic relationship in public the way the dissolved marriage of Amber Heard and Johnny Depp has been, but I don't believe anyone can walk away from a toxic relationship without some kind of trauma. Your dirty laundry might not be aired on every type of screen imaginable, but the damage shows in the lack of trust we tend to have after a bad match. Personally, I believe that it's better to be alone for the right reasons than with someone for the wrong reasons. But if you decide to follow your heart, be careful and take your time. Walking away might be difficult, but it beats an indefinite stay in prison and the blood of your lover on your hands. You can listen to the complete police interrogation of Sarah Boone by subscribing to Human Monsters Premium, going to the link of this episode in the liner notes, or you can subscribe in the Apple podcast app. Thank you very much for listening to Human Monsters.